You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, the color is white. We are in Christmastide. And I feel it's a great honor to preach here this Sunday and next Sunday. George Hinman, our senior pastor, asked if I'd be willing to preach these Sundays. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And it's just a, it's just a great privilege to be with you. Four days ago, we celebrated uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. And there were shepherds there. And I love the way the shepherds first heard about the birth of Christ. And Luke tells us that in the second chapter of Luke. Listen, in that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were terrified. I love the King James. They were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, be not afraid. For look, I am bringing you good news of a great joy for all the people. The word laos is used there for people. It's the general term to mean people at large. All the people. Or the King James Bible translated it, all people. It omitted the the. But it's that same idea of all people, all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And now listen to this. Then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. By the way, the Greek word for host there is the word for soldier. Heavenly soldiers. Uh, it's like the Marine Corps band is now with the, this angel. Heavenly soldiers. The, the King James, the RSV says hosts. Heavenly hosts, heavenly soldiers. Praising God and saying. And now we hear the first Christmas carol. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace. And I think the King James Bible has translated it best. Peace, goodwill toward men. That's the first Christmas carol. By the way, the word for goodwill here, or peace, goodwill, is an interesting Greek word. Eudokia means good decision. So the literal translation, if you want to literally translate it, it would go like this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. That's the good decision of God. That's his good decision toward us, peace. Well, that's what the shepherds heard. I'm very intrigued by one sentence especially, or one phrase that's in that great uh, announcement from the angels. This, uh, he says, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news, gospel, Good news of a great joy to all people. I'm intrigued by that all people part. Because as a matter of fact, the good news did spread to all people. It spread throughout the Roman world. Within one century, the whole Roman world in the Mediterranean world heard about this gospel. The churches were established within that, just those 70 years after this. And that's an amazing thing. And if archaeologists are right, the, do you know the oldest Christian building found by archaeologists is not even in Europe. It's in South India. 
the Martoma Church believes, and they, we have no reason to doubt this, that Thomas, doubting Thomas, who had doubts, but then he was assured on Easter of the victory of his, of his friend, Jesus Christ. And he's the one who gave the greatest confession of faith, my Lord, my God. And the tradition of the Martoma Church is that he went all the way to South India and established the Martoma Church, the Church of Thomas. And the oldest known, archaeologically, the oldest Christian building is not in Europe. It's in South India. So it spread. The gospel spread. And what I want to reflect on today is sort of the key city in the narrative of St. Luke. This same writer will narrate the growth of the church in what we call the book of Acts. And in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts, we see Luke showing how that spread began to really happen in a big way. Early on, the Christians were persecuted. And this, that's an amazing thing in itself. The spread of the good news spreads even in spite of persecution, in spite of negative reaction and negative uh, oppression that they had to face. And in the 11th chapter of Acts, we have an amazing paragraph. Listen, 19. And now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, that would be the stoning of Stephen, chapter 8 of Acts, Stephen was stoned by a mob. And then persecution began to spread. And so many Christians in Jerusalem themselves began to scatter. So those uh, scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. They started as like a Jewish sect, sharing the good news with Israel. But of course, the angel had said to the shepherds, all people. So they shared it with the Jews at the beginning. But among uh, some of those men and women that came from Cyprus and Cyrene, by the way, that's North Africa. Cyrene is modern day Libya. Cyrene, uh, uh, from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they came to Antioch, they spoke to the Greeks as well. Not just the Jews, but the Greeks. And they proclaimed the Lord Jesus. It's interesting, Luke's one little liner about what they said. They proclaimed, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Karl Barth has an interesting line that he says, the oldest confession of faith in the New Testament is just three Greek words. Asus Christus Kurios. Jesus Christ is Lord. And notice, Luke is backing that up. That's what they said. This Jesus Christ is Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers, and they turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent, now this is the Jerusalem church now, sent Barnabas, here's our first encounter with a great man we're going to meet and is going to play a big role in the New Testament, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came, he saw the grace of God. And he rejoiced, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. And then Luke decides to describe Barnabas. This is Luke's description. For he was a good man. The word agathos means kind. He was a kind man, a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas 
went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember Saul, in the ninth chapter of Acts, had had an amazing encounter on the road to Damascus. He was himself a terrorist. He consented to the mob action that stoned Stephen. He never forgot that. And then he's on his way to Damascus. He encounters the living Christ. He becomes a believer. He comes back to Jerusalem, but he so frightens the people in Jerusalem because of their memory of him as a persecutor that the people in Jerusalem said, Paul, uh, Saul, you better take a uh, time uh, to think things over and kind of collect yourself and not here. So why don't you go home? So he went back to Tarsus, which was his city. Barnabas remembered that. So now look at, here's Antioch. People are returning, are turning to Christ. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and he, to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was there for an entire year that they, that'd be Barnabas and Paul, Saul. It was they, there that they taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch, and this is the last line. It's a very interesting line. It was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Well, that church of Antioch, as you know, became a missionary sending church and will send Paul and Barnabas and then Paul on three different missionary journeys. They're all going to go from there to all over the Mediterranean world from that church. Well, there's the text that shows how... The gospel spread to all people beyond just the Jewish nation. Why would so many people become believers? First, let's talk about Antioch. Why Antioch? Antioch is 300 miles northwest of Jerusalem, so it's not nearby. It's on the Mediterranean GNC. It's on a river called the Orontes River. It has a very, very favorable port. And it's interesting... When Alexander the Great conquered the entire ancient world, when he died, he, he made a very interesting statement that maybe was a big mistake. He said, instead of appointing his heir to the Alexander Empire, Alexander said, let the strongest lead. Well, that was an invitation to rebellion. And so his officers and all the generals of Alexander fought each other for territory. The one who got the most territory was a man named Nicator Seleucus. And he had a huge territory of which would be the whole Holy Land and, and what would be ancient Babylon and all that. And he was one of the generals of Alexander the Great. And he uh, decided to build cities because he had all this territory. He did an ironic thing. He named five of the cities he started after his father. Now, that's a little bit overkill because then what are you going to do? Because he named him Antioch after his father, Antichius. So you should have to go Antioch 1, Antioch 2, Antioch 3. And it's sort of like Springfield, the United States. There are too many Springfields. Uh, so you have to identify him with the state. And so you had to identify them by somehow. So Antioch, this one, is Antioch, Syria, or on the Orontes River. Then there was Antioch, Poseidon. And then there's a whole bunch of other Antiochs that Antichius, or rather Nicator, Seleucus, created. But this was his glorious city. And in this one, tremendous money was spent building this city. Do you know that by the first century... When Saul uh, is alive and Paul's alive and during the time of our Lord, this city is the third largest city of the Roman Empire. It has 600,000 people in it. By the way, now there's only 12,000 people in this city. That's why no, no archaeologists go there anymore because there's nothing there. When the city died, and it died because the river silted. 
And those ancient river cities that had a big harbor, when they silt, that's the end of the city. Because it was a trading city that made its wealth from trade. Because ships could come in, just like Ephesus was a city that also had a harbor. They could come into the harbor. It became the beginning of the main silk route to India. And by that time, the Roman Empire was wealthy and was buying a great number of products from India. So they would come to Antioch. They would get on ships, and that's how they made their wealth. The city became extremely wealthy, also decadent. It was, the, it was known as the most decadent city in the Roman Empire. Third largest, the largest is Rome, second largest, Alexandria, third largest, Antioch, Syria, Antioch on the Orontes River. And this city had a surplus of water. The only city in the Middle East with lots of water was Antioch. They, uh, they had built a piping system uh, which piped water to every single dwelling in the entire city. No other city in the Roman Empire could promise that, could, could offer that. But with that wealth and opulence came decadence. The city was decadent. It was noted as a cynical place. People, in a sense, they made their money too easily. It's sort of like people that get rich with, with no effort tend to be bad rich people. They don't, uh, they're not good to be around. And these people had made their money too easily just because they're a trade center. And so they charged these huge prices just to be a trade center. And they made a lot of money. And they became cynical. So much so that though they had beautiful uh, arenas built for orators and for musicians to come and travel around during the Roman era, uh, the, the orators hated to come to Antioch because the Antiochians always made fun of them and mocked them and threw epitaphs at them when they tried to do a, an oration or singers tried to sing. So it had a bad reputation. I'm bringing that up for an interesting reason. Uh, they also became very wild uh, morally. They had a place called the, uh, it, it was called the, uh, uh, the, uh, um, uh, well, it was a uh, um, kind of a, a a section, a section of the city was called the Grove of Daphne, which was so, uh, it was so wicked that Roman soldiers, when they were on liberty, liberty were not allowed to go to the, the Grove of Daphne. And that became a joke in the first century world if you were from the Grove of Daphne. And that was Antioch. That's the city. Now that city seems an unlikely place for the Christian gospel to thrive. And yet we're told by Luke in chapter 11 of, of Acts that it thrived in that city. Why? What is there about the gospel that enabled it to thrive when they shared the message of the Lord Jesus? It thrived there. Uh, I'm going to give three reasons that I see here in the Luke text that will help us understand why it thrived. The first reason is what they said. Luke decides to describe it very sparingly. They taught the, uh, about the Lord Jesus. They told the life of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little uh, insight into first century preaching. When Peter gave his sermon on uh, the day of Pentecost, chapter 2 of, of the, the book of Acts, tells of Peter preaching, 5,000 people responded to that sermon. And in Luke's gospel, or in, which would be the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, if you read that sermon... I can read it to you in Luke 2, the day of Pentecost sermon by Peter, 
in two minutes, I can read that sermon to you. But we know that Peter spoke a lot longer than two minutes. We know first century speaking traditions. But Luke has given you a compression point in the sermon. At one point in, in his narrative of Peter's sermon, he starts out by quoting the prophets, Joel, and then he goes through. And at one point it says, this Jesus attested to you by mighty works was crucified, but death could not hold him and he conquered death. This Jesus attested to you by mighty works. Right there you could insert the book of Mark. Mark was a disciple of Peter. He traveled with Peter. He heard Peter preach everywhere. And this sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost was probably the book of Luke. We know from Broadway that a actor has been able to do the book of Luke, the book of Mark and, and narrate it as a single piece. It narrates so well. It's so alive. It's so exciting. It's full of action. That was the preaching of the first century church, Peter's preaching. And when Paul preached on Mars Hill, what did he say? Uh, I can give you that sermon and read it in two and a half minutes. In fact, if you go to Athens, you'll see a bronze plaque with that sermon on bronze on the Areopagus, on that great rock where Peter, where Paul preached. But we know that Paul didn't preach two minutes on the Areopagus because the tradition there was that speakers would speak all day long there. So what did Paul preach? In my view, he preached, preached the book of Luke. Luke was a beloved physician who was a Greek himself, who traveled with Paul. And what you have in Luke is the narration of the life of Christ with a special slant toward the Greek audience that won't understand all the Jewish symbolism. So when Paul preached, he preached the book of Luke. He preached the life of Christ. That was the message. It's very important that we not lose sight of that. We think sometimes if we say a few statements that will summarize the life of Christ, it'll do. But if you want to be in keeping with this book of Acts text, chapter 11, what they spoke when they came to Antioch is they told the life of Christ. And then Paul and Barnabas spent a whole year there teaching. That's narrated for us by Luke. They taught the life of Christ. Now it's interesting. Even the humor of the Antiochians points this up. Many scholars are interested, and New Testament interpreters are interested, why is it that Luke makes the comment that here for the first time the believers were called Christians? Was this the people of Antioch honoring them, or was this Antiochian humor? And I tend to, I agree with the interpreters of the New Testament that maintain that this was a derisive statement made by the people in Antioch. They said, oh yeah, these people, all they do is talk about Jesus all the time. That's what they're talking about. They're Christians. And that's how the word Christian first came. It was not given as a, as a statement of honor, but a statement of, of, of humor or a statement of mockery. And yet it stuck. Because the thing that's good about it is that though they were mocking these early Christians, these early believers, they were mocking them at their center point. They were hitting them where they really were. They, they rightly saw what was the main message of these Christians. And so it's derisive, but on the other hand, they have caught hold of what is at the heart. And according to the text, the Lord's hand was with them, and many became believers because of that message, the message of the Lord Jesus it brings to my mind a great novel, the great no and probably, in my opinion, the greatest novel ever written would be Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. 
In Brothers Karamazov, there are these brothers, but there's the middle brother named Ivan, who's 26 years old. His younger brother is Alosha, who's the main character of the book, who's only 18 years old. Alosha, though, has scandalized the family because his father is an atheist, everybody's an atheist in the family, but Alosha has joined up with Father Zosima, who's a, a Russian Orthodox priest, and he's become devout, like as if he might become a monk, and the family's outraged about this. Especially Ivan, who's become an atheist. He's been to France. He's an atheist. And he uh, make that very clear. And he says, in one of his uh, times when he visits the family, he says to Elosha, I want to have lunch with you. And the famous lunchroom scene is one of the high points of the brothers Karamazov. As Ivan, the older brother, who's in his 20s, and his younger brother, Elosha, at 18, go to have lunch. And the purpose of the lunch for Ivan is to make fun of the Russian Orthodox Church, to show how decadent it is. And he also he throws in the Jesuits, too. He wants to show how decadent Christianity is. And it just is, is, uh, is false and it's bad. And he's trying to clear his brother's head of all this nonsense. And so he tells these horror stories of bad things that are happening that, that we all know, maybe know about that happened in the church. And then at one point, Elosha has been listening faithfully. He so admires his older brother. He's listening. But then finally, he, when he gets to speak, he says, oh, but Ivan, we have a savior who is Jesus Christ. He is able to heal us of our sins so he can heal the church. And that's his answer to his brother. And then here's, in my opinion, one of the greatest lines in Fyodor Dostoevsky. Ivan says to him, says, oh, yes, I knew it. You Christians always drag in Jesus. <laughs> you drag in Jesus. But notice in that rebuke, he caught the point that Elosha is not intoxicated with Father Zosima. He's intoxicated with Jesus Christ. And then a strange thing happens. Right after he says that to, to Elosha, he says, you know, Elosha, uh, a, a year ago, I wrote a poem. I wrote a poem about your Jesus. Would you mind if I read it to you? And Elosha says, yeah, read it. And you know, that is the setting of the Grand Inquisitor parable. It's told by Ivan about Jesus being tempted by the devil, where amazing things are taught about Jesus Christ. The devil says, we made men happy. But Jesus says, ah, but I make them free. And at the end, Elosha says, you have sought to, you have sought to, to make fun of Jesus. You have honored him. And then he, he gives his brother a kiss. The story's not over. I want to tell you something. Uh, Ivan got it right. The people at Antioch got it right. The thing that won the people at Antioch was the centeredness of the message. Notice the Antiochians didn't say, didn't call them Presbyterians or didn't even call them Norwegian Lutherans. He didn't do any of that to make fun of them. No, you're Christians. Now there's a second reason too. The second reason is that in spite of this rebuke or in spite of the cynicism of this city, these early believers don't decide to leave the city and go find a better place where they can be safe from these people. They stay in Antioch. Imagine staying in an outrageous city that even Roman soldiers can't stay in. They stay there and teach. They teach there. That's Paul's strategy. That will be a strategy throughout his ministry. He'll, in Ephesus, he'll teach for two and a half years at Tyrannius Hall. 
And then when he gets imprisoned, he teaches by writing letters. We're kind of glad he got imprisoned. Otherwise, we wouldn't get these letters from Paul. But he teaches, and he even teaches in prison. At the end of the Philippian letter, he writes, uh, we send greetings, and those in Caesar's household send greetings too. He's winning soldiers to Christ. Listen, they taught. They taught their way. They shared the implications of this man, Jesus Christ, as Lord. And that becomes the main part of Paul's strategy throughout his ministry. We're seeing it right here, and that's why it spreads. It spreads thoughtfully. It spreads to the mind as well as the heart. And then third, the third reason is, again, a one-liner from from St. Luke. He says that when Barnabas came down to Antioch, I love the way it's put there in Acts 11. When he came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God. What's that mean? The word grace, charis, is one of the love words in the New Testament. Paul is the main user of that word, but also John. It means surprise love. Because the word chara comes from the word surprise. It's surprise love. The love you didn't expect to see. The love that's generous when you didn't expect to see that generosity. The love that can heal, like Elosha saying, Christ can heal, that you didn't expect it. It's an unexpected love. And he saw it, this generosity of spirit. And when Luke decides to describe Barnabas, he uses another one of those generous words. He says, Barnabas was a good man. He was a kind man. Agathos is another one of the love words in the New Testament. And that's the kind of man he is. And that's the kind of thing that he saw in this church in Antioch. These believers were generous. These believers were not fearful. They were not hard. They were not exclusive. There was goodness about them. And they welcomed in these people. These cynical people were welcomed in. And Barnabas himself is described that same way. Pascal has an interesting point in his Ponces. He says there are three ways for means of belief, three ways for people to become believers. First, if we're going to try to help people become believers, first we have to show that the gospel fulfills tradition. It fulfills what they've been looking for all their life. Two, we have to show that if they were to believe it, it would have a good effect in their life. Venerable. It would be a good effect if he believed. Three, we have to show that at its core is love, goodness. And I love the way he puts it after that. We must show that love is at the core so that good men and women will hope it's true. And then finally, we have to show that it's true. That's how people will be one. And that's what they taught. They taught, but there was a goodness that was at the core. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, tells about when he was in his atheist period He stumbled into a book by G.K. Chesterton. It was the book, Orthodoxy, that Chesterton wrote about becoming a Christian. And he said, when I read it, I was struck with two things. I was struck with his humor, which I loved, and I was struck with his goodness. And then Lewis has this line. I love this line from Lewis. He said, I always liked, he's the atheist now speaking, I always liked goodness when I saw it. And it had nothing to do with any attempt to be good myself. I know a lot of people that go through a cynical period of their life, but there's one thing that cynicism can't handle, goodness when it sees it. That happened to Michael Muggeridge when he went to do a a story on on Mother Teresa. He went as an atheist to do a story on Mother Teresa. 
and the goodness won him. He couldn't handle it. Goodness. A good person, a kind person, that kindness, that love, that generosity of spirit. It's not afraid. It's not exclusive. It's not hard. It's not angry. It's not bitter. It's good. Uh, Shirley and I, it, when we go up to Bellingham, because we, uh, one of our, we have three sets of kids, and one of our sets of kids are in Bellingham with their two daughters, and we go up to Bellingham when we can. And when we go there, we love to go to church, the First Presbyterian Church of Bellingham, because the pastor of that church, Doug Bennell, who used to be on our staff here, and by the way, I keep following all of our former staff people, try to go to their churches whenever I see them. But uh, Doug is the pastor there. He was once on our staff, but he's a pastor at Bellingham First. And I love that young man. And he, at the end of his service, almost every time, near the benediction, he always has a sentence that he likes, and he uses it. And I love this sentence from Doug Bennell. He says to his people, God is good all the time. God is good all the time. And that's what the people at and Antioch saw. And when they see that, they believe it. And it wins their hearts. Still true. God is good all the time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this goodness, for the truth, for the centered faithfulness of these early believers at Antioch. And that it spread. And that this good news spread. May it spread in our lives. May we not only know the truth, but may we have that goodness that can share it as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.